This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The year is 2000. And Disney has a choice. Sting or Tom Jones? They chose Tom Jones. The movie, The Emperor's New Groove. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, uh, joined as always <laughs> by my co-host Amy Nicholson. Each week on the show, we talk about movies. Movies that are perceived as the best of the best. But are they? Or do we just remember them that way? Or in the case of The Emperor's New Groove, did we just assume they were bad and never watch them in the first place? Well, this is a really interesting film. The Emperor's New Groove is a movie that if you talk to a certain group of people, a certain age group of people, they will tell you it is their favorite Disney film. It's really an outlier in the Disney world. You're coming off of all these giant hits, and this is a non-musical, I mean, there is one song, comedy. It really breaks the mold, and right before Shrek gets on the scene, and I have to say, uh, while... Audiences loved it. Disney hated it. Yeah, there is a ton to talk about here. And I kind of just want to jump in. Honestly, I feel like I've waited decades of my life to know enough about this movie to be able to talk about it in the first place. And now I just want to talk about it. You know what? Let's start our groove and unspool it. The year is 2000 and Disney has to make a cartoon about a llama. I mean, they have to. They've promised McDonald's that they would release a cartoon about llamas in the year 2000. This is not a joke. Now, here's the thing. If Disney doesn't follow through, they're going to be out even more millions of dollars than the millions of dollars that they've already spent and years that they've put into trying to make this llama cartoon happen. The year is 2000 and corporate synergy is how movies are made. In honor of Disney's new movie, The Emperor's New Groove, we're putting a llama in McDonald's Happy Meals. Hello, a toy llama? They're moving, grooving launchers, and there's one in every Happy Meal. Come on, llama. Come on. Booyah! But Disney has a few good things going for the project, which they are calling Kingdom of the Sun. Roger Allers is directing. He made The Lion King. Sting is doing the music, and he's Sting. And what a voice cast. Owen Wilson in the lead role. Carla Gugino as his love interest, Harvey Firestein as this comic relief, and Laura Prepon as a female llama herder. Plus, it's only been a decade since the Disney Renaissance started with The Little Mermaid, and the Renaissance is still in full swing, isn't it? Isn't it? That was a movie called Kingdom of the Sun, which became The Emperor's New Groove, and how that happened is as hilarious as The Emperor's New Groove. Very simple. And very funny story about a selfish emperor named Cusco, voiced by David Spade, who gets turned into a llama 
by his advisor, Isma. That's Eartha Kitt, who was awesome. And then he has to turn himself back into a human with interference from a nice villager named Pacha and a hilarious himbo henchman named Kronk. They're voiced by John Goodman and Patrick Warburton. In fact, the cartoon and the story behind the cartoon have a lot in common. Egos, misguided leadership, moments when people are forced to throw up their hands and say, ugh, it works because it has to work. No, it can't be. How did you get back here before us? Uh, uh, how did we, Kronk? Well, you got me. By all accounts, it doesn't make sense. Oh, well. Back to business. There's even a documentary about this whole backstage saga directed by Sting's wife, Trudy Styler. It's called The Sweatbox. We're going to be playing some clips from it, but you can track down the whole thing on archive.org, which I highly recommend. It's great. It's so great. Uh, but The Emperor's New Groove was released in 2000. It was released on December 15th, 2000, only six months behind schedule. I did not see it at the time. Paul did not see it at the time. You told us we had to see it because we had casually slagged it off. And I am so glad that we did because I did not know about any of this drama. And I am very excited to get into it. So what was in the zeitgeist that December of 2000? The number one song on the Billboard charts was the third number one song from a group whose lead singer would go on to get headlines right now as the Disney Slayer. Her new concert movie just debuted at number one on the box office charts and pushed Disney's big 100th anniversary movie wish all the way down to number five. And yes, the singer was also the voice of Nala in the remake of The Lion King, but she does not need Disney because just as the song says that she is singing with Destiny's Child, she's an independent woman. Tell me how you feel about this. Try to control me, boy, you get dismissed. Pay my own funnel and I pay my own bills. Always 50-50 in relationships. The shoes on my feet, I bought. The clothes I'm wearing, I love it. I love it. I would love it if we change the lyrics to Independent Llama, but I am <laughs> on board. Uh, we have the, to get this podcast out, Paul. We don't have time to change the lyrics to Independent oh, Llama. Oh, please, but you do. People at home, please make Independent Llama for us. We don't ever ask you to do stuff like that. Make us Independent Llama. Let me just set the stage a little bit more for where we are in 2000. We talk about the Disney Renaissance. I want to just give you the rundown of the last... 10 years before this movie comes out. We have Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan, Fantasia 2000, Dinosaur, and The Emperor's New Groove, followed by Atlantis. Now, this movie often gets slagged off because it is in this grouping of films that I think are a little second rate. I mean, anything after Pocahontas, it seems like, is viewed with a little bit of a eh, hunchback of Notre Dame. Sure. Hercules. Okay. Mulan. Fine. These movies were kind of just okay. Yeah. It's interesting because you look back at them as a whole, you know, starting with the little mermaid and then going up through, I guess like 99 Tarzan, which is kind of when people bracket this off. Weirdly out of all of those, the one that I think of is probably the top, top tier Little Mermaid is the lowest grocer money-wise. And then from there, they just shoot off. I mean, by far, Lion King, biggest blockbuster of all of them, made nearly a billion dollars. But even by the time we're getting to like Mulan, Tarzan, they're still doing strong numbers. But the problem is they've just gotten really expensive. Like Tarzan, for example, it cost $130 million to make, which is three times what it costs to make The Lion King. And it made less than half the money. And I'll tell you from my point of view that, as a kid growing up in this time, I found these movies or this batch of films to kind of be like, I don't like that story. I'm not interested in that story. You know, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, a little bit more timeless, but I didn't want to watch The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I didn't want to watch Hercules. I don't know what it was. They, they felt less fun to me. Yeah, there's like a shift, right? It's like, here's the group of stories that are based on Hans Christian Andersen myths or kind of classic tales. They come in with this heavyweight idea, Lion King, which is this Hamlet. And then these other ones are like, oh, okay, I guess you could put that in the Disney branch, right? Like Tarzan, we don't associate with Disney. We don't associate as like an ancient story. You know, I associate it with like 
black and white kind of swinging through hills, Johnny Weissmuller running around, that kind of stuff. Same thing with yeah. like Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like I associate that with like, you know, fun, fun Lon Chaney movies and stuff, but I don't think of them as Disney. And that kind of tone that you're talking about, I think is also happening. Like they're like, oh, what if we take these movies really seriously? You know, because Little Mermaid was pretty funny. And then by Lion King, they're getting kind of somber and they're becoming yes. more like, they have these heavyweight celebrity associations, you know, serious people doing music. El- Elton John does like the score for The Lion King or the big songs for it. Phil Collins is doing Tarzan. Michael Bolton's doing Hercules. So of course, Sting is like, I'll get in on this. I'll do your next one. But they're taking themselves really seriously. Yeah, it felt a little bit like paint by numbers. Here's your big singer. That's going to be a song. And here's your story, which is neither funny nor dramatic, just kind of a story. And if you put it in the context of 1999, the year before this comes out, I think two of the most impressive animated movies come out in that year, which is Iron Giant and South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Both of those movies represent a shift, and they were big. I mean, they were big films that I think make movies like the ones that Disney were making look really bad because it shows you like, oh, just how far we could be pushing animation or just how funny animation could be or just how interesting a new story could be. Yeah, this tone shift, right? They're like, they're being able to be more creative and it feels like Disney is kind of locked into this template and Disney's also freaking out that they're locked into this template. They, I think they're agreeing almost that they're worried that they're becoming too paint by numbers. And meanwhile, yeah, they're having all of this extra competition because like Katzenberg is gone. He's now at DreamWorks. They're having kind of, they're having this competition with Pixar, who's like making Toy Story, showing them that they can be doing that as well. And they're not, you know, it, and so they're thinking, who are we? What are we here for? We just heard Katzenberg is making El Dorado. Oh no, that's like going to also be kind of serious. We got to do something just as serious and even better than that. Yeah, so that fear, that rush is this moment where Disney's like, okay, if they're going to do El Dorado, we'll do a, an animated film about ancient Incan civilization. They're going to kind of Dante's Peak their volcano or something like that. And <laughs> they make this big, broad movie. It feels epic, almost like like a, a Charlton Heston movie, if you will. Like, you know, like a very biblical, but not biblical type of film. Yeah, it's like a creation myth of a cultural civilization. And you cannot stress enough that because they have Roger Allers doing this, the guy who made their biggest film, by far, Lion King, they're like, yeah, man, we're listening. Let's do it. Like, Here's how Roger Allers is describing like the scope he has in mind. The mythic aspect of the Inca culture is important to me. I'd love to get something of the essence that does have to do with their gods and the sun and uh, the beautiful imagery of that sort of thing. The challenge of you know, trying to make something of the Inca culture and, and make it come alive and take us to a, a magical place that perhaps once existed but doesn't anymore. And so this is the story people are expecting. Like, how is this going to work? We're really ready about this. And then they have this first test screening. And I want to play the buildup to talking about the first big test screening. And then you'll hear it rolls into a little bit of the intro of how this is going to sound. One director described this, Rob Minkoff, who, who worked with Roger on Lion King, said screening the movies like this is having someone chop your hands off and pull your pants down in front of a crowd. And you stand there with stumps bleeding, incapable of pulling your pants back up. And that that was the experience of screening one of these movies. The creator, Vera Concha, wanted the world to have light. So he threw a rope to a distant star. This star was empty. The sun. People lassoing the stars. And then what happens is afterwards they're talking about it and everybody's like, this sucks. And when Sting is like, I kind of liked it, they're like, shut up, Sting. I have to say, I enjoyed the movie far more than I thought I would. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're caught in a really interesting proposition because if you don't know how animation works, or especially the way that animation works at Disney... The animation is part of the writing process. You're constantly creating acts, retooling acts, bringing new things in. And like it was set up there, they are faced with a complete dismantling of this film and keeping the parts that work and jettisoning the ones that don't. But it's really hard when you have such an epic story. It's not like you could just keep one part of it. They have to make a bunch of decisions. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it a musical? Now, meanwhile, Sting 
has been writing songs for a musical. That is what Disney is known for. Musical animated classics. And it hasn't been that easy for him, too, which is so funny in this documentary. I mean, part of why Sting's wife is doing this documentary is because the studio is being really tactical. They're like, we don't really like to open our doors to documentaries. This is kind of like unnerving for us. However, we don't want Sting to walk away from this project. So if we let Sting's wife make this her first debut, this is like her first debut as a filmmaker, it'll be harder for him to walk away from the project because he wants to see it through because she wants to see it through. This is our thing. And this is why this documentary is great. And you have all these like early scenes of Sting being like, what should a llama song sound like? I don't even know exactly what the plot is, but what does a llama sound like? This whole song is about um, llamas in Incan society and the, the, the position, you know, the premise is that the entire civilization is dependent on the llama because you can't have a civilization if you don't have any clothes on. I, I was writing songs in the dark, really, based on sort of hearsay of what, what the film was going to be. There was no hard script. And you can see Sting getting frustrated because in the beginning, he comes in writing the music before there is a script. He's writing a story about the prince and the pauper. I mean, that's that ultimately is the story that the kingdom of the sun is following. This idea that a pauper and um, an emperor switch places. And the songs that Sting is writing are fun. They're alive. They feel energetic. And he's really excited by that premise. This is like 10 Sumner's Tales uh, Sting right here. And that happens a lot with musicals. You write the music first and you kind of write the dialogue around it. But the thing is, they want to change the whole story. And I think from that moment forward, Sting is a little bit lost. He doesn't know what he's writing a story for. You really can't do this style of writing on the fly with a musical with a musician, I think, as conscious as Sting is about what he's trying to say and do. Like, he has a hard time envisioning his lyrics in a llama's mouth. He he can't just go with the flow. And that's great. Like, I do believe that he's an artist and he wants to tell an interesting story. And you see them giving him notes and he is just having a horrible, horrible time. It really feels like they should part ways here just because he's creatively overwhelmed. He just doesn't know what to do. What should I be doing? Because the animators don't know what they should be doing. And they work on it. And then they bring it back. And they don't like that. And then they have to kind of figure out, well, let's take the best of the best. And they 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 pitch four ideas to Disney. And the ideas are wild. This is a movie that was based in Incan civilization. And they're bringing an animated movie that takes place in Nebraska about cows as one of the four <laughs> ideas. I mean, that's how far they're getting away from this yeah. original idea. There's one in Jamaica, I think, where one of the guys yes. is joking, I guess we could just redraw these characters with dreadlocks. Like, they're kind of losing it. And it's so funny to watch. I mean, part of the thing about watching a document like this now, you know, 25-ish years later, is you're looking around these Disney rooms, right? I don't know if you had this feeling watching the doc, but I was thinking, oh my God, everybody in here is like a white dude of around the same age. A couple right. women in the corners, but it's Maybe. like just these rooms and rooms of like white guys with glasses talking about like, what do we do about these countries, you know? And Sting on the side, also being a white dude of a certain age, but sort of being like, how can I keep this company ethical? You know, right. like when they kind of pitched him that the movie was, was going to end with like, and then this prince who wants to build a gigantic theme park builds his gigantic theme park in the rainforest. Sting was like, absolutely not. And he's telling his wife, no. I've been aware for a while now that my vision of the world and Disney's may be at odds. I can only be candid. But there's something intrinsically faulty with this film. And I find it very difficult to continue working on something that goes against my beliefs. I offer my views humbly and I look forward to your response. Yours sincerely, me. I think it's a real concern of mine that, that I, I'm alloyed to this, this organization that seems to want to take the best of different cultures suck them up and then spit them out to something that's like a hamburger. It's really not what I want to do. I don't think that's what they want to do, really, if they think about it. Which is, so I'm in an interesting position. I'm only a songwriter. Isn't that kind of fascinating, that little last part he says right there about, like, having this conversation about cultural representation? How can we do this sensitively? Because I feel like Disney has gotten better at that, like, a lot better at that. 
But I like him here kind of trying to wade the gap between like, they're not trying to be dumb, but are they trying to be smart? Well, I also think one of the things that Sting's reacting to is that the lesson learned is I'll build my water park somewhere else in the rainforest, right? Like he was going to build it where someone lived. And now he's like, my lesson is I won't build on someone's land. Making my cat happy is my number one priority. And Fresh Step Out Stretch Litter helps me do just that. Meet Mr. Mittens. Mitty, for short. Ah! Mitty is happiest when his litter box is clean and fresh. And Fresh Step Out Stretch is amazing at absorbing waste and odor. We sure have found our common ground, haven't we? Happy cat, happy life. Find Fresh Step Out Stretch at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about this movie because we are here to talk about The Emperor's New Groove. What becomes this movie, this movie about a prince who wants to build, I mean, in the actual movie, it becomes a summer house, which, again, is a wild idea. This movie feels, to me, like a patchwork quilt of ideas. So much so that David Spade narrates large portions of this film that clearly they wrote dialogue for, that they just felt wasn't working. It's like whenever anything isn't working, they cut to David Spade doing VO. And it's kind of mind-boggling, but in an interesting way, it feels so uniquely different than anything that Disney has done. Like it it it's like they got punched so many times. They got their hands cut off. They got their legs cut off and they still kept on going. And this is what you get. Like at a certain point, if you take away everything from these people, they just have to use what's on the table. And they did. Like, I think now this movie would never be released. But back then they couldn't afford that. So they had to release it. And this is what you get. This weird film that I think shares more with the Animaniacs and the style of animation going on on Fox after school than anything else that Disney's ever done. Yeah, and I'm going to say, I loved that. I loved that about this movie. I had so much fun watching this movie. And it was interesting kind of doing that mental math afterwards because I watched this movie super plain. I don't I don't know if we ever really talk about this. When we watch movies for the show that I haven't seen before, I like to watch them completely in a vacuum just in the movie and then I learn about it. And yes, then I go back and same. like watch parts of it again. Okay, go. Cool. Cause I love having that fresh reaction. Yes. So, you know, I'm watching this and I'm like watching David Spade's narrator come in, you know, over a scene where we're watching John Goodman as the nice villager kind of try to talk to his family. And what do I do? And do I tell them that we're going to get kicked off our land? And I don't know how to handle this. And the sad music is kind of coming in. And then he jumps in. He's like, hold up. Let's shift the story back to me. Uh, <laughs> Hi, excuse me. Two seconds here. Um, I'm the one in the car, remember? This story's about me, not him. Okay, you got it? All right, we're going to move ahead. Sorry to slow you down. I just thought that was this movie being, you know, like self-referential, cheeky, a thing that it does, I think, a lot in ways I enjoy. I didn't know that it was also because in the room, there's just a huge fight about this family. They're like, I think the family's boring. Why do we have this family? Do we need these scenes with this family? How do we make this wife interesting? Maybe we can't make the wife interesting. How can we get around this? We'll just say, hey, we're not talking about her anymore in the voice of the llama character and shift it back. And that's honestly, as patches go, I will roll with this. I will completely roll with this. But like, it's crazy making, right? It's crazy making. Like one of the details I loved, you know, that scene where like Kronk, who's amazing, cannot wait to get into Kronk later. Kronk is like back at this villager's house and he's doing double dutch with the kids. This is my variation of double dutch on the signal. We switch places. Kronk, it's time. Okay. 
<sighs> that was because Disney came to the cartoon makers as they're trying to just like patch this all together. And they're like, okay, so we have this new deal now with ESPN where we're going to be showing like double Dutch jump roping championships on television. So if you can work jump roping into the movie, fantastic. And they're like, you know what? This movie is so insane. Why not? Here you go. Jump roping. We're good. We're jump roping now. The freedom is kind of fun. It's amazing. They really were just patching holes on a boat. And thankfully, that voiceover works to a certain degree. But I think at the end of the day, what you get is a movie that's really not a movie. Like, there's no true feel to this movie. I thought this movie was really funny, really weird. I like the performances, but it doesn't really grow. It just kind of keeps on pushing the ball uphill, right? It doesn't ever feel like it takes off. As much as I enjoyed all these pieces, like at the end of it, I was like, okay. Like, it's not a musical, which is wild, right? It's This is a movie that was going to be a full-on musical. It has a great opening number dunk by Tom Jones. In the beginning of this movie, I'm like, I'm all in. We got to play it. It's a banger. There are despots and dictators, political manipulators. There are bluebirds with the intellects of fleas. There are kings and catty tyrants who are so lacking in refinements. They'd be better suited swinging from the tree. I'm all in. I love this movie. I'm already on board. I didn't know it was going to be David Spade. I was a little bit surprised that David Spade was an Incan emperor. Uh, it just was like, okay, all right, sure. Uh, and then when I heard John Goodman, I was like, this is great. It, it, The opening just feels to me, and I mean this with the best intent, wacky. Like wacky, fun, weird. And that to me is Animaniacs, which is a show that I loved when I was a kid. It just felt like it was pushing. And then it just continually kind of goes down. And then you could feel like the audience testing meter in this movie. Whenever it gets a little bit boring, they just kind of pull you out of it. And it keeps on going up and down, up and down, spiking a little bit to tell you a very basic story, which is a powerful person gets turned into a donkey, a talking donkey. Excuse me, llama. Oh, sorry. Do, do you want the llama so, to come after you? The so llamas sorry. are going to get mad. Do you, do you know what a llama sounds like when it gets mad, by the way? Oh, because I was hoping you were going to play a clip. Of course I was. Which, by the way, is actually pretty accurate to the llama yell that we hear in the very beginning, where you have the little, oh, I love the opening music, and then the llama yell. So you can say moderately biologically accurate regarding llamas. Okay, well, I'm happy about that. I will say, too, if you are a historian, uh, like most of our audiences, uh, the original story, one of the elements of it that I think was really interesting was that the prince was turned into a llama. He was only distinguished as the prince because he had a birthmark and the llama had a birthmark. And that was the connective tissue. Here, this llama is just David Spade. David Spade is talking in a world in which yeah, sure. Like, it's not shocking that he's talking. It it really has no, <laughs> like, no weight to it in a way. Yeah. Um, he apparently, like, went in there and he was like, he tried different llama voices. He was like, should I do it deeper? Should I do it this? And they were like, no, we just want your, and he, this is his quote, nasally, normal, annoying, sarcastic voice. And they just let him riff, basically. They were like, I don't know how to do this movie. And so he was just in there making jokes. And they cut out any jokes he made that they thought were too modern. Like if he was joking about, he made jokes about Michael Jackson. He made jokes about George Bush. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. We need this to be more timeless. But other than that, like go for it. And wait, the bit in the documentary where David Spade talks about why they changed his character's name, because it was supposed to be Manko. Then they changed it. I liked it when I was, what was my old one? Manko. Manko. Yeah, why did they change Manko? I think um, it means... Um, pussy in Japanese and that's not what bothered him um, it means bad movie in Turkish you get the <laughs> sense that he knows that he's on a sinking ship I mean and that is I think part of this animation process I worked on an animated film that I love the premise of I don't know if I can speak about it because I had to sign NDAs it was great the voice cast was fantastic I worked on it for about six months and it was shelved, never to be seen again. Oof. And like a truly great 
cast and premise just didn't work. My friend worked on another one for two years, shelved. Um, You know, and these are the problems with making these big movies because I think that there's a freedom in animation that you don't really have in any other medium. You can change things. You can insert things. You can get new voice lines in. You know, when you have a film, it's done. You can go back and do reshoots. But if you don't get it in the reshoots, you can't really change it again. Here, it plays to that idea of too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Everyone gets to weigh in. Everybody wants to see it in a different way. And what starts to happen is this thing gets completely diluted to the extent that the original director, the director of uh, The Lion King, leaves just leaves midway through. is like, I, I'm not here. I'm not set out in this world to do this version of the movie. I think you could tell from the documentary, he just feels lost. And I think a lot of people feel lost. They have this premise, a simple story, but it's just not working. The same way that Sting was hitting these brick walls, this movie hits story brick walls. Now I'm laughing during it. There's something really energetic about it. But I think even at like an hour and 24 minutes, it doesn't even earn its time, ultimately. Like, I'm like, what's the end of this? It just feels like it it wears out its welcome because, again, it's David Spade kind of shitting on the story while telling you the story. And really where this movie, I think, thrives and why it stays alive for as long as it does is because the voice performances around it just kind of keep the film above water. Like, oh, I love all these people. This is really well cast. I mean, it's completely different cast than the original cast, but it is fun. Every time I hear Patrick Warburton on screen as Kronk, I'm in. I think it's a hilarious character. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. So wait, hold on. I think I like this movie more than you did. Okay. And I want to kind of get into that for a second before I like rhapsodize about how much I love Kronk. Because I'm trying to figure it out too. I think part of why I really liked this movie is just that it was like out to entertain. And I haven't felt that way about a Disney movie in a minute, you know, because we are at, I think we're at in a period right now where Disney is lost again, right? right? I mean, they had their new renaissance that I would say started like around the time of probably Princess and the Frog, I'm guessing. Right. And like rose up again, had another big string of hits that I thought were, you know, mixed quality. You know, I don't love Frozen, but whatever, it's fine. And then now I feel like, they're really lost in the weeds again. We had another, yeah, we had, maybe things always happen in 10 year cycles, 10 years lost, 10 years good, 10 years lost, 10 years good. Now it's like they're making money, but they're making money on live action rehashes. It feels like they're really floundering. Yeah, I just came off of seeing Wish, the movie that Beyonce quote unquote killed. And to put this into perspective, like the Emperor's New Groove was considered a flop because it made like $90 million, I think in theaters. Wish right now, as we're recording this, has only made like 40 million or so. So it's making less than a movie that was considered their big flop, which is rough because this is also supposed to be like Disney's big 100-year celebration movie. You know, there's so much emotional heft in this. And when I watched it, I thought like, this movie is okay, but it's bizarre because it's like trying to, have you seen Wish yet? I have. Okay, the idea that Disney feels this pressure to take a movie and have to retrofit it to become a prequel to like every cartoon that Disney has ever made in its entire life to be the origin of all magic in the universe. What? I found it to be a little forced in that when you talk about this idea of every 10 years, you go through a drought, then you go through a rebirth. I think that the drought happens because of success. Because of success, you get locked into, well, this is what the audience expects. This is what the audience wants. So we must give them that same exact thing. And you start to find yourself trying to recreate what already is successful instead of trying to find what that new thing is. Exactly. And I think you're also writing for an expectation of what comes afterwards, You know, like Sting, I think when he was writing his original music for this, was writing with the expectation that this could be going to Broadway, like the Lion King musical did, you know? So like he's writing also with the idea of this kind of follow-up life. And I feel like that's definitely been happening with Disney musicals post-Frozen again, where when I was like, Wish, to me, the big problem with Wish was just the music was awful. 
like the music was all written in that kind of like ballady, big, homogenous, just sludge. There's only one song that I really loved that was like kind of the percussion, weird, fun, strange one towards the end. That song was great. But everything else was so samey. That pressure of expanding it into different formats and then everybody getting invested and all the executives piling in. And, you know, even Bob Iger, like just last month being like, oh, you know, films like the Marvels didn't do well because we didn't have enough executives looking over it day after day after day after day. No, 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 no. And I mean, as much as, yes, this movie is such a product of like people panicking, there's an element of Emperor's New Groove where also when really stuff just went down to the wire, at a certain point, the executives kind of mostly had to be like, go with God. You just have to get this done. And it winds up, I think, having its own specific personality because of that, that kind of cuts through the saccharine. That's what really surprised me watching it is like, oh, I'm just laughing. Oh, this is just goofy. Like, oh, I thought this title was so stupid and it is kind of stupid. And I love the moment in the documentary when like Sting sticks his tongue out at it. But I do love the moment where they fold the title in by saying, beware the groove. I I threw off the emperor's groove. What? His groove, the rhythm in which he lives his life, his pattern of behavior. I threw it off and the emperor had me thrown out the window. (gasps) Oh, really? I'm supposed to see him. Don't throw off his groove! Oh, okay. Beware the groove. Hey, are you going to be all right? I mean, I'm laughing. I'm laughing. I haven't laughed at a Disney movie in a long time. And what is a Disney movie for if I'm not laughing? I mean, I did laugh when... He kicks the old man out of the temple because he knocked, (laughs) he interrupted his groove. I was like, groove. It's such a weird thing because it is all tape on a ship. You know, like we're like, we're trying to get the ship to dock. And I think what I'm saying to you is about the film, not that I don't like it, is that it just gets a little long in the tooth because I'm not really emotionally connected to anything. Like after the bridge scene where they really connect the John Goodman character and the David Spade character. Right, when they learn that they can press each other's backs and like form this like symbolism of teamwork. Yes, I I love that. And then from there on in, you know, until we get to that final act where, you know, uh, people are made into kittens, I'm just sort of like, okay, let's get back. Let's get back. Let's like, there's no other stakes. And I think that that's because they start cutting out all these other plots. Like the story is from that moment, they've already agreed that, they're going to work together. And there's not really that many more obstacles in front of them after that. Just kind of the obstacles of adventure, but not anything that they're overcoming as people, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Did you need that all the time? I guess I didn't miss it. I guess I didn't miss it at all. Well, no, but I think that that's what made it feel to me like a, a Fox show, like a Fox animated afternoon show. It was like, this is fun. It's It has a lightness to it. It just... It just feels like, okay, we're just doing bits and gags, but I don't know if that is a 90-minute thing that I want to sit and watch. Not saying I need to see a whole character arc out or all these changes, but there's not much left for me to enjoy. I found myself going, okay, okay. I mean, I'm I'm in. I'm la- I'm still laughing throughout. I just it just felt like the note was we don't want to sew this down. We don't want to really connect with them. It's that note that you get when you're watching a show with the dial. It's like, oh, the dial went down here, but then it went up here. It's like, oh yeah, that's the setup and then that's the punchline. And I feel like this movie is like, anytime that dial goes down, they're like, oh, we're nervous about that. Like, we don't know. We don't, we're not confident enough in this to allow moments to happen. You're right. Okay, I'm of two minds, right? One of my minds is that this movie just felt to me like a very long Warner Brothers short. Yes. And I love uh, Warner hun- Brothers. Me too. I love it. I love it. I mean, the jokes are just so silly, so wacky. They're leaning on kind of older routines, but they're making them really funny. You know, the old kind of Marx Brothers gag, basically, of like people spinning through doors and missing each other. I'll have to charge you full price. <sighs> hey, how about a side of potatoes, my buddy? You got it. You want cheese on those potatoes? Thank you, Kronk. Cheddar will be fine. Cheddar spuds coming up. Spuds, yes. Cheese, no. Hold the cheese. No, I want the cheese. Cheese it is. Cheese me no likey. Cheese up. Cheese in. Oh, come on. Make up your mind. Okay, okay. On second thought, make, make my, my potatoes, potatoes a salad. salad. I mean, even like, to me, I love the old classic of like the devil and angel on your shoulder, you know, which like Kronk has here. You're not just going to let him die like that, are you? My shoulder angel. Don't listen to that guy. He's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you down the path that rocks. I even went down this like whole like 
rabbit hole of trying to look up all my favorite old angel devil clips because I just love that trope. And it's like so tropey. And you can't really give the film credit for using an old trope, but it's a trope that I just think is always really, really funny. I mean, do you want to hear some of my angel devils? Oh, just tell yeah, me yes. please. Okay, okay, okay. One of the first angel devils I ever found actually was like an old Disney one. It was like a, a Donald Duck one from World War II where Donald Duck is being told that he should do the right thing as an American and go out and buy World War II bonds. But the devil's like, eh, wouldn't it be nice to just spend your money on yourself? Not tomorrow, Donald. Today. I'm tired. Donald! Donald? Your bank. Come along, Donald. Wait a minute. Don't let that sap tell you how to spend your money. Be smart. Spend it on yourself. Okay, I will. There's like ones with Fred Flintstone, like from the from the Flintstones, where Fred is like, oh, do I have to give some of this money from this winning lottery ticket to Barney? You bet your life he's a real pal. And do you know what you are? You are a schnook. A schnook? Yes, a schnook. All right. So you didn't have the money, but you could have offered to split your ticket with him. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll split it with him. What's the matter? You nuts? You want to give away half your winnings? Don't be a sucker. And then, of course, like Family Guy has just been like going nuts with it. Their whole running thing is like when Peter is having angel and devil problems, most of the time the angel is just stuck in traffic and can't get there. And so the devil has to do it anyways. But here it gets more violent. Why don't you go talk to him? I don't know. There's a game on. Shame on you. You march right over there and cheer your old friend up. Don't listen to that, sissy. Grab a beer and watch the game. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, oh my God! Now get your fat ass over to Joe's. Look, buddy, I, I... No! All right, all right, just, all right, just take it easy. Just take it easy, man. Everything's cool. And there's something about the violence of this devil that just made me laugh. Like, when the devil is on his shoulder and he cocks his pitchfork like a shotgun. <laughs> That's it. She's going down. To see a Disney movie just have, like, a very dumb gun-cocking joke, it felt just dangerous enough, I guess. That it made me laugh. And maybe it wouldn't have made me laugh in 2000. But like in the moment that I'm at in my long-standing, lifelong relationship with Disney, it made me laugh because it felt refreshing. And I think that's also a huge part of the cycle. Well, it would be a huge part of the cycle if they embraced it. But they did it. They let it go. I think they took the wrong lesson from it, which is we are trying to distance ourselves from this. We don't ever want to repeat this. And I do think that Disney could have had an interesting couple of years if they did embrace the culture of animation at that time. I think that there's a split the difference world, which this movie does rest on, of Animaniacs and South Park. Can you do something subversive and fun? And, you know, the way that even Ren and Stimpy was. Like, we a lot of us who grew up with cartoons, these Disney movies were staying behind and not moving forward. You know, we're getting movies like Bolt and and things like that that felt like they ran it into kids stuff and they figured, all right, well, kids are dumb. They'll watch whatever. So who cares? And I think that the things that elevated those other films were, they felt like movies. And where this movie, I think, falls apart is it doesn't feel like a movie. I think it could have felt like a movie, but there are a lot of these like, nah, whatever, like the trapdoor runner. You know, why do you even put that trapdoor there? Why do we have a trapdoor? And that's how she gets killed at the end. It's like, it's like, uh, yeah, because the trapdoor. It's like, <laughs> and by the way, I love it. I lo- like, I'm all in on it, but it's lazy. Right. But I mean, can't you just picture the room? Like, that's what I was thinking. Yes. Like, then hearing about all of this, like, this movie was such a headache that I can really see an entire room of people getting to the point where they're like, that made me laugh. It's going in. Oh, one million percent. And the thing is, is like, and you can't say anything about it because- you know, we talked about this in the beginning. Sting was having a hard time with, you know, David Spade's character wanting to build a, a water park in uh, Pacha's village. And the solution was just to build a water park in a different part of the rainforest. Now he wants to build a summer home and he builds his summer home near Pacha's village, an uninhabited hill. And Pacha can use the pool use the pool (laughs) like it's like all right it's not like oh we're gonna spread wealth we're gonna help people it's like you know and again i don't need that but it's like the movie walks a line of being very subversive and then very disney and i think that 
what you and I are responding to is the subversive things within the Disney cartoon. It feels to me like what that first Shrek did so well. And Shrek comes out the year after this. And Shrek is the deconstruction of the Disney fairy tale in a way that's funny and interesting and clever. And that, to me, is what Disney almost had here if someone realized it. But I think really what people were trying to do was just get this to a releasable state instead of just leaning into what this movie was almost about to do. This movie was almost Shrek. And then Shrek came out. Because it's the closest they've ever done to like a horrible, unpleasant lead character. Yes. And and there is something about Shrek, and we talked about it. Like I had a a negative uh, remembrance of Shrek. And rewatching it, I was like, oh, it, it is very fresh. It is very funny. And that, to me, is a fulfilling film. Like a film that has emotional moments in it, but does not drop the comedy. And here, I don't know if everyone was even on the same page tonally. And that's something that comes up in the documentary. Like, they give Sting this note about his songs being different types of songs. And it's such a crazy moment. You watch Sting going, but that doesn't even mean anything. What are you saying? Because you hear Sting's songs, and they're just like, yeah, that one's a little faster, that one's a little slower. Like, you listen to The Lion King, and you listen to, like, Circle of Life and Hakuna Matata, they're very different songs. You can, very different songs. You know, and that's something Disney's really been failing at lately. I think that Wish, they tried to do that. I, I don't know if it, it was successful. Yeah. Well, there was like one number that felt, felt like very Taylor Swift-like. I really love that end number when the queen kind of joins them. I, I When felt she like, comes in and joins them, she's the best singer out of everybody. Oh, she's sure. amazing. She's my friend and she is awesome and she kills it in that movie. That's the only good one. I think that is the only really really good song in the whole movie. But 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 here, like, the tonal clash from the score to the sting is so wild. Like, the last few seconds of this movie, when it goes from, like, ta-da-da, we're swimming, to, oh, this is the sting song that's going to get nominated for an Oscar, I was like, what? And every single time I, like, re- I would rewind it and rewind it because it just kept stopping me in my tracks. It's so awkward. In the quiet time of evening The stars assume their patterns And the day has made his journey And we wonder just what happened I mean, what a tonal shift. And like, oh, yeah. I'm glad for Sting after this headache that he gets his Oscar nom. He loses, um, it was like a really competitive year. He lost to a Bob Dylan song, I think. That's like the one thing where you really see the fault line of the movie that this was supposed to be underneath it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Making my cat happy is my number one priority And Fresh Step Out Stretch Litter helps me do just that Meet Mr. Mittens Mitty for short Ah! Mitty is happiest when his litter box is clean and fresh And Fresh Step Out Stretch is amazing at absorbing waste and odor We sure have found our common ground Haven't we? Happy cat, happy life Find Fresh Step Outstretch at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. I mean, it's interesting because now I feel like we're talking about branding. Because I'm going through all of these things in my head as you're talking. I'm thinking like, if this movie was not a Disney movie, but it was the same movie, and I couldn't think of it as being the subversive, pitchfork-cocking movie, would I like it as much? Like, if it was, like, Blue Sky, would I think this movie right. was as good? I'm not entirely sure. I think I have to sit with that for a second. Or then I'm thinking, you know, as much as I love the Warner Brothers of this, has there ever been a good full-length Warner Brothers movie of this length? Does this kind of tempo exist best in shorts? 
and and I'm trying to even think of like an example that like is like a full Warner Brothers crazy, crazy, crazy movie like this from start to finish. And I'm blanking a little bit. I mean, there's like bits of Roger Rabbit, but then Roger Rabbit has a ton of heart underneath it. Well, you know, I, I you know, you and I got to see uh, the Wiley e. Coyote movie that was <sighs> almost never to be released. And I feel like they actually capture. Oh, me too. And I feel like they really capture the Warner Brothers tone throughout. But you're right. Like Warner Brothers shorts, I think are fun because they're very like rubber bandy. Like you can kind of pull them and they, but you don't have to live in that world. I think it's very much a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes movie. But if you want to go big, if you want to go crazy, you, uh, you know, I'll take a page out of this book. You have to embrace the groove. You have to embrace the chaos, <laughs> right? I mean, because you think about it, like, what are these movies that have really worked? And a lot of them are adult films, adult animated films. Sausage Party, right, is a, is a great example I love of Sausage one. Sausage Party. So funny. But it is a movie that is pushing boundaries, limits. It's going in all these different directions. And I think it really, really works well. I think that, you know, we talked about Ardman and how they do it, uh, which is also fun and weird. I think where we get the most slapstick in any of these movies, or kids' movies, I should say, is Minions. Like, kids love Minions. And Minions are silent movie stars. I mean, that's what they are. And they're shorts and they're long, but they are, for the most part, one-fourth of a movie. They are topping throughout the entire film. They're not the actual film. And I think that that's probably the best example of what they wanted to do. They just didn't have the story to kind of carry it through. And I don't think, like, maybe people love it. I don't know. Despicable Me is always an interesting one because, like, there are things I really like about it and there's things I really don't like about it. So, But I like that that's at least, like, leaning into unpleasant protagonists. A thing that yes. I just absolutely love. Or figuring out how to make somebody doing bad things be a person that you like anyway, which to me brings us to Kronk, who's probably like the last character added to this film by far. Like, I think this was after they've already decided they're going to get rid of this whole like complicated Prince and the Pauper thing after they've cut Owen. Oh, sorry, Owen Wilson. If you want to hear a little voice of Owen Wilson, like in a trial of like how this character was supposed to sound when he was going to be the Pauper of the Prince and the Pauper version, here he is. One me would do the things I don't want to do, while the other me is having fun. Suddenly, I'm not so depressed. But Kronk, I mean, the story that I heard about Kronk is like late in the making of this film, of kind of really figuring out this final version of it. They were looking at a line of minions that they had kind of protecting Ozma, and they just started making up a dumb voice for one of them. And that voice turned into Kronk. And then they pitched Kronk, and people are like, I don't get the point of this character. What's he there for? And they're like, "Uh, I don't know. We just really like him. And they did a trial scene where they sort of made up a kind of little jokes for him to see and kind of pitched that to see if it would work. And what they pitched basically made it into the movie, which is this. So, is everything ready for tonight? Oh, yeah, I thought we'd start off with soup and a light salad and then see how we feel after that. Not the dinner. You know. Oh, right. The poison. The poison for Cusco. The poison chosen specially to kill Cusco. Cusco's poison. He was just so funny. It's so charming that even though there's not like a the strongest argument for this character, they're like, okay, go for it. And Kronk, to me, is just marvelous. I love Kronk. I mean, Kronk is... Patrick Warburton. I mean, and that's that's the other part of this. This is a movie in which David Spade is David Spade. This is Putty and David Spade in a movie together. And it's great. Exactly. It's glorious. It's like with, and, with the tiny touch of an actor, Rick Rossovich, too. Like that that was kind of what they were thinking oh, when yes. they first came up with the idea. Like Rick Rossovich, small character in Top Gun, maybe one of his bigger characters that people have seen him in is, is Roxanne. And you can hear the cronk in this clip from Roxanne. Your knockers. Your, no, not your knockers, your breasts. Your breasts are like uh, me- melons, not not melons like uh, uh, pillows. Could I? Can I fluff your pillows? But yeah, it is basically like Patrick Warburton, you know. I mean, the the part with the chipmunk. Ah, uh, he doesn't really want to talk to you. Well, then you ask him. <sighs> He'd been in the middle. Squeaky, uh, squeak, squeaker, squeaking. <laughs> Jaguars, no kidding, brutal. I mean, it's just wonderful. Like, it's just wonderful. 
I love Patrick Warburton. He makes me laugh. He plays so well off of Eartha Kitt, who I think does an amazing job. She's phenomenal. What she was going to do versus what she does do is a little bit different. And I feel like she still is great, but I, I kind of wish I saw the version in which she was a little bit more well-drawn, I guess, you know, or her character had more to do. Yeah, she had huge elements, like up until the last minute even, even when they're like retooling this, like that opening song, the the Tom Jones song, she had a whole verse that you see her sing that she doesn't get to sing. I there know. was so much more of her. You know, and she was going to have this whole subplot about like, she wants to take over and take the sun down because the sun uh, gives you wrinkles, which is very true, wear sunscreen. And, and so like, she was doing it out of her own vanity. And you can hear a little bit of like that old song right here. When a woman acquires a certain age And the men who adored you no longer swoon It pays to avoid the sunlit days But the moon grows old just like us all And her beautiful years are done So now she prays through endless days To take her revenge on the sun Watching the videos of her behind the scenes doing this performance, seeing her emote, watching her like move her face and her body and become this character, I was just absolutely in awe of of everything Eartha Kitt did behind the scenes. I was wondering, do you think that part of the reason that Yzma becomes a cat at the end is just an extended joke about Eartha Cat playing Catwoman? Oh, in, in, <laughs> yes, yes, a hundred percent. I mean, Eartha Kitt's always going to give you that little cat. Energy. I mean, she does, she growls multiple times in the documentary. Can I, let me give you a compliment and a criticism. Not you, but the of, of the movie. I was suspect if I would enjoy David Spade for 90 minutes. I was like, that's a big, a big chunk of time to have him as a lead character. And I will say, I did. As much as I talk about the movie kind of running out of steam, it doesn't run out of steam because of David Spade. I think he does a great job in this movie. And I would have been... I would never have bet that. I would have thought that he would run out of steam for me. I would have thought so too. I actually read an interview where he said this is the only movie he ever did that actually got good reviews. <laughs> Not Tommy but, Boy? <laughs> Gosh, I haven't seen Tommy Boy in so long. It's very funny. Here's what I'll say. The animation besides Kronk and Isma, and obviously Isma has been in the film the longest time. That's Eartha Kitt's character. Um, and Kronk the least amount of time. The rest of the animation doesn't feel like it's matching the voices of our characters. And that's something I really was looking at. I was like, oh, this voice that's coming out of David Spade is so interesting. It's so specific. And I didn't feel like that character had any of the David Spade energy, nor did I feel that the llama had that David Spade like look to him or something. And uh, I love Pacha and John Goodman's such a great voice. It just... They didn't feel like they inhabited who they were. Like the voices, we recognize them and we're on board with them. But I felt like Isma and Kronk really felt like the voices and the faces matched. Could you understand that? Or is that like, does that no, feel too? No, I completely too, like, agree. I yeah. completely agree. Like the one area where I would compliment the animation is I do love the colors that they use. I love the, this color palette that they're yes. using, the kind of yes. dual colors. I love that they're going for like an exaggerated kind of expressionist design. The Peru of it seems very light to me. I don't even know if they even say the word Peru in here. But like, I mean, I guess Peru wasn't even called Peru and maybe the time that they're setting this in. But the one little bit when you go into to the, the evil Isma lab and all of her beakers are done in kind of the style of like Peruvian textiles, that was so beautiful and so funny. And I love just like the neon pinks and purples and blues in that scene. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I thought that this entire movie really looked good. And I think I love 2D animation as well. I just feel like there was so much going on here. There's great art. There's great ideas. And it feels like this movie was rushed. It was pushed out the door. That to me is unfortunate because I do think that they were finding something. And even if they went on this track and were able to polish it just a little bit more, I think you would have had a better movie. And I think what I'm saying is, this is an entertaining experience. I like this movie. It's fun. 
I'm not even saying it's fine. It's fun, but it feels to me very disposable. And we talk about a lot of movies on the show, and I haven't felt that way in a long time. Like, there's not much here, but I'm enjoying watching it. I mean, I can go with that, that maybe this movie is most interesting as a point on the timeline of the Disney map of, like, charting the company's corporate culture. But I also can get that if I hadn't been told this movie sucked, and if I also hadn't felt like I was a couple years too old to have to keep up with every Disney movie at the time, that if I'd grown up with this movie, I can imagine absolutely loving it. Yes. You know, I can imagine being like, I want it. I like it fast and furious. And I can, now I can kind of relate to like the chatter I have heard about why doesn't Disney respect this movie? Why aren't there any like references to the Emperor's New Groove at the theme parks? Like I've heard it's really hard to even buy like Emperor's New Groove merch. If you're into merch that there's really nothing to have when Disney was finally, thank God, revamping what um, Splash Mountain was going to be, I think the waterfall of it all, people were like, maybe this is our moment. We'll get like an Emperor's New Groove water park. We'll get the water park that we've always been promised. And no. Yeah, it, it's almost like the most representation you get of Emperor's New Groove in Disneyland is basically that Patrick Warburton does the intro for Soarin' Over California. Hello, and welcome to Soarin'. My name is Patrick, and I'll be your chief flight attendant today. We'll begin boarding in a few minutes, but first I'd like to acquaint you with some important safety information. I think that Disney is often trying to figure out what will be successful and how things will work. And this movie wasn't successful. And this this 10-year period here is pretty much underrepresented in the Disney universe. It's a little bit forgotten about. This is a moment where Pixar is taking off. So everything that Pixar is making in this 10-year span is the basis of rides and things like that. Yeah. And it's funny because like Wish ends with little illustrations of all the characters from this time period. And I was like sitting through it in the end credits and I was like, I don't recognize this one or that one or that one or that one or that one at all. I know. Well, I'll say this. I think the reason why this movie resonated so much with kids of this time was because it was more familiar as the tone of television at this time. So I think in many respects, this is more of a contemporary film that was inadvertently put out by Disney that captured something that they were not making. And if I was a kid and I saw this, I would think this was hilarious because it is subversive, but not so subversive that you don't understand why it's subversive. Like there is just, it's jokes, it's funny. Even Sting is laughing at it. It is comedians doing comedy, which is always a big plus. And they really know how to milk a joke. And they also know how to pull you back in. And I think this movie doesn't work with anyone but David Spade. You need that snark because that snark almost says to you as the audience, like, I know this movie's not good, but trust me, I got to tell you this. It, it, it Like, there is a funny energy to him. Like, he gets out in front of it without ever saying it in a way that I think makes this movie really enjoyable and really different than anything else that we've seen. The refusal to make this movie earnest, I think is the reason why it is successful, but I also think it's the reason why it, it, it's downfall. But I don't think that there's a releasable version of this movie without that subversion. I just said a lot of words there, but uh, you know, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I like, like I think, all like, of them. I like all of them. I think that's a really good point. You're right. He matches what this is. As totally right. strange as it is for there to be a David Spade cartoon where he's a llama, it would be so different if it was like, hello, I'm Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and this is my very serious llama. <laughs> uh, first of all, yes, you're 100% <laughs> right. Yes. And even if that, if even if uh, JGL was trying to make this movie, I think it wouldn't, even if he was trying to be fun and light, I don't think it would work. Like David Spade just carries the vibe of, I'm not supposed to be here. I don't like being here. It's a very Groucho Marx kind of energy, you know, to a certain extent. And I think that that's what this movie needed. Right. It kind of needed your anti I would cartoon that would have me as a lover. I was trying to figure out how to say it. <laughs> All right, Amy. Uh, speaking of this, I think we've really dug into this movie a lot. And I, I would almost think that this is an interesting conversation to look at with Shrek. Because Shrek and this share a lot of DNA. We talked about it already. But I think the thing that Shrek does really well is still find heart, heart amongst hard jokes. And I think that that's really, really hard. So take a listen to when we tackle Trek. This movie makes, you know, a strong left turn and all of a sudden shows, oh, you can make something that isn't your mom and dad's 
animated film. We can be edgier. We can have cooler people being funnier in this world. And look, I know Eddie Murphy was already in uh, Mulan and doing a, you know, a similar kind of character, but there's something about this. And I've seen both of these movies recently where this movie just feels more alive. There's just something more fresh about this movie. And I'm surprised that I'm saying that because I didn't want to see it. And I think I've just been, I think it's just been, I've been over Shrek. Well, I think part of why we feel that way is because all of the Shrek sequels, this is what I'm trying to separate in my head too. Shrek one, not terrible. The rest of the Shreks, sloppier and weirder and kind of more out there in a way that's not even cool. Okay, Paul, well, it is time to get seasonal. I want to do a Christmas movie and I want to do a Christmas movie that I genuinely love and one that has made me cry every single time that I have watched it. So I'm just going to declare it. Our Christmas entry that I want to do this year is the Tim Burton movie, Edward Scissorhands. So beautiful. We'll be back with Edward Scissorhands next week. And as always, let's thank everybody who helps us get this podcast made. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.